What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Blue Wire listeners. I'm Greg Olson. I'm excited to partner with Blue Wire to bring you TE1, a podcast where I interview the tight ends who have revolutionized the position. Listen in as I have raw, in-depth conversations with the all-time greats like Shannon Sharp, Tony Gonzalez, Travis Kelsey, and George Kittle. We'll explore how the tight end position has changed over the last 60 years and what it takes to be the very best. Subscribe to TE1 from Blue Wire Studios today so you're ready for the August premiere. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host, Dan Favalli. I can't believe that it's finally time for this, but but we're ready to make some playoff picks. We've uh, had two different segments of the 2019-20 season take place, as interrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we finally have the seeds set, the matchups ready to go. We're going to have some playoff basketball. Uh, before we get into the picks, a, a shout out to our sponsors, as always, Deal Dash, NFL Sunday Ticket, and BetOnline.ag, without whom this podcast would not be possible. And then, as another housekeeping note, before we actually get into the picks, Dan, how's it going? I love that my well-being is now a housekeeping note, but I am doing fantastic. I, I can't decide like if it deserves to be more than that or less than that, so it feels like a safe middle ground. <laughs> Uh, that's fair. I know, look, I know it's been days now at this point, but I'm still riding that. That Blazers and Nets game saved that entire end of the regular season for me because those other games were just absolutely awful. That entire It made day. me so much less upset that Phoenix went undefeated and didn't even get into the play-in game just because that game was so much fun that it was impossible to have negative feelings. Shout out to Brooklyn for having a skeleton crew, for having nothing to play for, and still treating that like it was a real playoff game. That had the intensity of a late-round postseason matchup. Everyone was going all out. Everyone was diving on the floor. Just so much fun. Yeah, the only thing that I guess they really deviated from was having Karis LeVert hold for the last shot because in a, in a game with stakes, you want to try and just get the best shot as quickly as possible in that situation. But that was still... I still was, don't I, have... Did you like the shot or not? He was getting to the rim all game and so and like really just putting Portland's defense on tilt. And I think CJ McCollum did a good job of keeping him outside the paint there. But you see this in a ton of crunch time scenarios with I would say not every player, but a majority of players. Like they're not even looking to get to the rim, it feels like. I know there's defenses are a factor in that and that you're gonna spend more attention trying to get them away, but it just feels like Guys want to take the game-winning jump shot. It's not, oh, I want to finish the game-winning drive at the rim. LeBron will happily do that times at times, but or Giannis as well. But these perimeter players, it does feel like they settle a lot in those game-winning situations. I had such mixed feelings because on one hand, like, yeah, he had been getting to the rim pretty much at will. But on the other hand, like, he's a, he's a good mid-range shooter. He's a good off-the-bounce shooter, and he got a good clean look. It was a very makeable jumper. 
I mean, McCollum didn't even get a hand up to really contest it until it was too late. So I, I, I think it was a fine shot, even if it wasn't an ideal one. Yeah, look, and the way he was playing, and and again, look, the game had we can't. There's it's pointless to dissect it for Brooklyn too because that game had just no bearing on anything for them. It made people think that Karis LeVert might be the third star in Brooklyn, and I've always been higher on him, I think, than the consensus. But after watching what he did against Portland, it's one encouraging, but two, and I talked about this with Christian Winfield, uh, covers the Nets for the Daily News. I don't know what it brings to the table when Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are on the floor and, and Spencer Dinwiddie too, you're not going to have the ball in your hands that freely. But this is not a Nets Outlook podcast, though we will be talking about the Nets at some point. This is supposed to be a, a playoff podcast. We're really bad at staying on topic. But that was still a fun game. We haven't we haven't recorded since then. So I'm excited for the, in general, I'm excited for the first round. I don't know if it's because we went without basketball for so long when we weren't supposed to, like that unscheduled offseason feel. But I almost feel like this first round is more interesting than it has been in years past. There are only really two series that I write off as just meh, like I don't even want to see it. And maybe maybe three, depending on how you feel about Lakers-Blazers. Like That feels like it's going to be an entertaining five-game set. That's kind of how I feel about a lot of these, where I think the, the favorites are the favorites for a reason. And I don't really, I mean, as we're going to get to in more detail, I don't really foresee too many upsets taking place here even without the advantage of you know true home court advantage like you would typically have in the postseason and yet as as you said it is still so exciting possibly because of when it's happening and I I think another part of that is as as fun and, and well executed as much of the bubble experience was so many of those games had no stakes you know there Portland had to play must win game after must win game to get in to the play-in game in the first place, but it still had that feel of of teams battling against each other with drastically different motivations and goals. And I think that created fewer compelling games than we would have hoped for, and that's about to change. But so many of the games at the beginning were just close in the bubble. Like the first half, like it felt like we were it in like crunch time every single overtime. game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I would say, look, I think the format ended up being a success, and I'm interested to see whether they can find a way to, you know, I think next season's going to end up being butchered as hell, too, so they'll probably have to figure out something similar, but I'm wondering if they can bring the play-in in some form uh, in general moving forward, because I did find that entertaining, even though maybe you just set it up where those teams are actually playing each other, as opposed to these other teams that are sitting everybody or don't care in the second half or something like that. Yeah, my, my only gripe is still just the Phoenix thing. Uh, I get I get that they didn't do enough before the hiatus, that they still finished with a losing record, that they should have done more beforehand if they wanted a real case for inclusion in the postseason. But if you invite a team and it goes undefeated and it doesn't have a chance to keep playing, it just feels wrong. I, I wish there was some sort of mechanism, even if it's just like an addendum to the typical setup where if a team doesn't lose and still isn't in, it will be included in a play-in tournament. Like something like that would work where, you know, if you lose one game, then you have no, no argument. But if you go undefeated and your season is over, why were you invited in the first place? Aside from the NBA wanting more games and wanting an excuse to try to get the Pelicans into the equation. I mean, I don't think they were trying to hide that. So I don't have as much of a problem with it as you might. I think probably they weren't hiding it, but it's still an issue. I think probably the, the bigger issue is that you had teams not playing the same number of games in that playing tournament, you know, the, the Blazers are where they are right now 
effectively because they have that one extra game over Phoenix, over Memphis as well, obviously. And I think the Spurs played three fewer games than Portland and then two fewer games mm-hmm. than everybody else. And so you could say that like maybe fewer games could technically favor a team, but that's the sticking point that I would have harped on more so than Phoenix going 8-0 not being able to get in. All, all I have to add on that topic is that you know, I, I picked Phoenix and Portland in the play-in game, and I'm going to give myself partial credit because Phoenix did go undefeated. Um, I picked Memphis and Portland in the playoff game, a play-in game, so I'm just going to give myself full credit because I got it 100% correct. Even though I felt, and I wrote about Look, we were it both right. You were just more right. How about that? I was actually right. You were theoretically okay. I think that's a fair way to put it. I guess I'll take that. Um, it's better than I could have gotten. Are you ready to go through these these series, though? Absolutely. So I'm going to start. We'll go. We'll switch up the order, but we'll go one eight and up for the East. Let's start there, and then we'll just go in reverse order for the West because we can anarchy here. That's all I'm here for. Which brings us to the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, I want to frame this quickly. I, I think you mentioned it at the top too. We're not weighing heavily, at least, what happened between these two teams when they played during the regular season or any bubble matchups they may have had. So much has changed since then, particularly regular season part one. It's been closer to six months than four months at this point, essentially. So I don't know what you can take away from there. And then just so many of these teams are are not really at at full strength. Even Milwaukee, what did Eric Bledsoe get two tune-up games in in the bubble? Or was it it three? The Magic don't have Jonathan Isaac, although they didn't have him to begin with. Uh, But even looking at some of these other teams, the Lakers not having Avery Bradley, the Sixers don't have Ben Simmons. It just, I'm throwing everything out the window. This is pure chaos. And yes, we're taking into account how teams perform during the regular season, but I'm not looking at, I know when you, when people talk about playoff matchups, they try to look at past regular season games to inform the future. I've never been the biggest fan of that anyway, unless they, just because the playoffs are a different beast. Uh, But here we're, we're just officially throwing it out the window. I mean, temporally, we, we are probably closer to 2020-21 matchups between these teams than we are to their initial regular season matchups. So yeah, like those don't matter at all. I don't even, I don't even remember any of them, so it doesn't matter. I've already forgotten what's happened in the bubble, in the, the regular season bubble, let's face it. But Bucks Magic, so uh, vitals for the teams. This is as far as we'll go to diving really into the regular season. Milwaukee was eighth in offensive efficiency, first in defensive efficiency by a light year, basically, and then first in net rating. Orlando was 20th in offensive efficiency, 10th in defensive efficiency, and 14th in net rating. These numbers are coming from Cleaning the Glass, which filters out garbage time for for anyone who needs to know about that. Adam, what's your biggest question for this series? Can you muster a big question about this series? My biggest question is whether Milwaukee can avoid any injuries in the four games it'll take to win. That's, that's about it. That's all I got. I mean, Milwaukee's the best team in the league. I, I feel like that isn't even too debatable right now when they're at full strength, which they very well could be. And they're one of the few teams that can say that. Giannis is the overwhelming MVP favorite. Uh, Chris Middleton is fantastic. Eric Bledsoe, as you mentioned, did at least have a couple of tune-up games. Brooke Lopez finally started hitting shots in the bubble, which is a huge deal. Yeah. And Orlando doesn't have Jonathan Isaac. Evan Fournier is sick. Terrence Ross had to leave the bubble for personal reasons. We're not quite sure when he's going to be cleared to play. It's not going to be close. Kudos to the Magic for getting here. Enjoy the four games, and then enjoy watching from afar. 
Yeah, I think for the Bucks, it's can you can Eric Bledsoe just get more so into the groove is my question that I'm watching. And then also, can they he kind of leave his postseason demons from each of the past two years in the past and get away from that? Maybe this isn't the series to even read into that, just because they don't necessarily need him to play well uh, to win. But I, my pick would be would be Bucks in four here. I mean, Orlando could they they're pretty pesky on defense, so maybe they could steal a game. But without the possibility of home court advantage, at least in front of a real crowd. I, I struggle to to pick them here. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a scenario in which like Terrence Ross is playing and is hitting everything and Fournier catches fire and Martel Fultz maybe hits a jumper or two. But I, I just, I don't see the upside there. I, I kind of hope that Giannis doesn't have to exercise any of those postseason demons here because I'd rather he save those growths for later round series. But we, we have seen throughout both parts of the regular season that he has developed counters to what held him back in the playoffs in previous years it was it was easier to to wall him off from the basket and force him to pass or take mid-range shots and he very obviously spent time in the gym working on that little turnaround fadeaway jumper and hit it very frequently during the regular season if he can continue to do that then all of a sudden strategies are gonna have to shift and i have no idea what the blueprint is for stopping him that's sort of been the like the default too for years now is if if he has like a a capable pull-up jumper from beyond the arc or even just from mid-range is just it's over and you're right I do think that the volume itself even though the efficiency definitely isn't where you want it to be that that does put some pressure on defenses who would be your your x factor for this series for just go ahead start with Orlando or Milwaukee I think it's Fultz as weird as that might be like he he's the player that has the highest variance in performance for Orlando and he is talented enough that he could create some problems and force them to adjust how they're trying to defend the Magic, maybe draw some attention away from Nikola Vucevic, who is fantastic. Um, so if he starts going blazing on offense, maybe they have a chance to steal a game, but it's hard to really even pick an X factor here for them. Yeah, I think, look, if the Bucks are going to invite them to to shoot threes like they do with with teams all season, my X factor is going to end up being, I, I think Terrence Ross, just because he started off the season shooting very poorly, but kind of did fairly well towards the end of the, of the year. And so if they can get, they need someone who can really shoulder heavy three point volume in this series. And I don't think they have that guy beyond Terrence Ross. Evan Fournier is a, a good shooter. Would you say, is he someone who's going to trust himself to go high volume? Maybe, but I also think he's maybe a little bit too big to be an X factor, but Fournier or Ross, whichever one you you want to go there. And I mean, look, you can get some shooting from Vooch. You can get it from Aaron Gordon's been hitting his stand-up triples for basically half the year. There's DJ Augustine, but you're going to need like a high variance, high volume three-point shooter to hit in this series to cause Milwaukee problems. And I think that would need to be Ross. For, for Milwaukee, and this is probably their X factor for the playoffs for me, Dante DiVincenzo is just, I want to see how much he plays. If there's lineups where Eric Bledsoe starts to bog down, do you go with a Dante DiVincenzo who gives you some ball handling? It's probably a better shooter, I would say, more comfortable firing up off the dribble than Eric Bledsoe is for sure. And then you don't lose too much on defense uh, from him. So I'm just, he's probably my X factor for the Bucks in the playoffs. I'm, I'm again, very intrigued to see how often he ends up playing and, and whether Milwaukee's willing to build lineups where um, he's in there instead of Bledsoe. Do you play him and George Hill a lot at the same time with Giannis? Um, can he and George Hill really direct those units without Giannis? because we don't know how, how often Giannis is going to play. This might not be the series to judge that, but just 
moving forward in the macro, I'm going to be watching Dante DiVincenzo very closely. For me, I think it's Eric Bledsoe still, which is the safe and easy answer just because of the playoff struggles that he's had in the past. But for this series in particular, Orlando does have an exploitable backcourt. If he can if he can gain confidence for later rounds and shoulder a, a heavier offensive load than he typically does, then that keeps Giannis and, and Middleton even fresher for, for later, tougher matchups. I don't, I don't think there's anything nuanced about that take so much as, you know, he, he struggled in the past. Yeah, the past two seasons have not been not been pretty for him. I have, so I'm going to just go Bucks in four. Is that where you're at? Yeah. yeah, for sure. We're logging these, so we'll be able to, to see where we went wrong. I am, I am logging them, rest assured, listeners. Sunday, Sunday, Sundays are coming back in the NFL. With NFLSundayTicket.tv, you can stream every live out-of-market NFL game every Sunday afternoon on your favorite devices. Plus, with Red Zone and DirecTV Fantasy Zone channels, never miss your favorite teams and favorite players. If you're like me, you can also actively avoid your favorite teams and favorite players if they happen to be the Jacksonville Jaguars. No matter where you live, NFLSundayTicket.tv is your key to the most glorious Sundays ever. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout to get 15% off your subscription. And visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use promo code BLUEWIRE. Raptors Nets. I, I want to talk myself into wanting to watch this series because I, I feel like the Nets are very fun. But the Raptors, their defense is, is absurd. And let me, I'm sorry, I skipped over the vitals. Toronto... This season, ranked 16th in offensive efficiency, second in defensive efficiency, was fourth in net rating. Brooklyn, 21st in offensive efficiency, 14th in defensive efficiency, and 18th in net rating. Keeping in theme with most Kenny Atkinson teams, even though he didn't finish the season there, where they overachieved on defense somehow, because 14 seems really high for points allowed per 100 possessions for this group. I'll start us off with the biggest question here for me, since you did it last time. Um... I want to see what becomes of Toronto's half-court offense because they're a team that can put a ton of pressure on the rim, and they do, but they're not the best finishers. And then when you factor in the volume they spend in transition, it kind of makes their finishing ability, you know, the iffy numbers that they've turned in now there, you become a little bit more concerned about it. And so who is going to be that um, from-scratch bucket from them in the – in the half court. And just to back up my point, Toronto on the regular season, third in frequency, which, which, with which their attempts come at the rim, uh, but they are 25th in finishing at the rim. They've really, it's Kyle Lowry is one and, and he can do that. He's not necessarily the guy who's going to put a ton of pressure on them, but he can get, generate his own shots, keep defenses on tilt with the ball in his hands. Um, I also think the way he plays too, where he can set up shots off the ball for other teammates where he's not actually dominating the ball because they will screen him in certain situations, that will help as well. But it comes down to Pascal Siakam. It doesn't make him an X factor to me, but Toronto's really invested a ton of time in in playing him as the primary initiator and saying, look, go get it in the half court. Like you need to create these things from scratch. You're going to have to um, dribble downhill into traffic, through traffic, get around screens, use different angles. And I think he's done a really good job relative to where he was not just two years ago, but last year when that uptick to me was more about volume and what he's doing now is just more about actual function. Like they've just completely reinvented the type of player that he needs to be. And so their half court offense is going to be absolutely huge. Marcus all, if he stays healthy, he'll end up being big too, just because of, of his passing. He's not posting up a ton anymore, but he's still just going to give you someone with vision and with the way that the Raptors can move, that will help them get shots in the half court. Brooklyn's a great team to test some weird things 
especially lineups against just because they're so shorthanded right now. But the Raptors half-court offense is going to be a story as they get into potential matchups with the Celtics or the Bucks, And so I'm going to be watching that during this series. My biggest question is similar. Uh, it stems from those half-court question marks, and it, it's more centered on Pascal Siakam. I, I want to see what he can do as a true number one option in the postseason setting. Because as talented as he is, so much of his offense does come from those transition opportunities, those broken plays. Can he withstand the pressure cooker in the playoffs as the de facto number one option? That said, I don't think it's going to matter much in this series just because this Toronto team is so deep and so balanced and so good on both ends of the court. Even if Siakam does struggle, we're talking about a team that is literally the first since the 1973-74 Buffalo Braves to have five players average more than 15 points per game. That is fantastic scoring depth, and it really speaks to their ability to get offensive contributions from Serge Ibaka, from Norman Powell, to Pascal Siakam, to Fred Van Vliet, from Kyle Lowry, everyone. I mean, you, you, can, you can also argue that guys like Marc Gasol, guys like uh, maybe OG Ananobi could even exceed that 15-point threshold if they were given more opportunities. So if people struggle on this Toronto team, they have enough power to really thrive with that next man up mentality, which is not great news for Brooklyn. But their their future within this postseason is going to be determined by how effective Siakam can be in that number one role. And this is the first time we're going to get to really see him try to, to, to fill that role over a series where the opposing coaches are scheming against him. Yeah, I think that's certainly something to watch too, because that's so important to just their future when you look at what they're trying to do and then relative to how many free agents they have this summer. I'll hijack the X Factor question. I'm going to begin with, let's begin with the Nets, just because we haven't talked about them yet. My X Factor for them is going to be Timothy Luau Cabarro. Oh, that's why you wanted to go first. You know, that was going to be mine too. He played fantastic basketball in the bubble. And if you need a second shot creator, and maker, it might be him. I know there's Joe Harris, but TLC is going to put the ball on the floor just a little bit more. He slashed basically 51, 45, 90 during his eight games in the bubble. That is that is just bonkers, a word that I use a lot, particularly to describe him at this point. And so he is clearly unafraid to take shots. I'm wondering if they can play him more than the 23 minutes per game that they were rolling him out for through these past eight. But they're going to need, like, they need that second option on offense aside from Karis LeVert. And I know Joe Harris is probably this team's second or third best player, but again, he's not, you're not going to him to generate your offense. That's going to be TLC. It's going to be Tyler Johnson. If Chris Chioza is healthy, like those are the guys you're going to look at. And so I just want to see, can we just unleash TLC? I want to see, I want to see 30 plus minutes per game of TLC and, and just monitor what happens. That was originally going to be my pick. I'll, I'll deviate from it in the interest of having two separate picks. Um, you remember when Tyler Johnson got paid and then quickly proved that he did not deserve to get paid? Do you remember, remember he when vomited that when he got that contract offer because he couldn't believe it? That's right. one of my favorite stories right. of all time. Well, in the bubble, he kind of started to justify it a little bit. And I'm I'm interested to see if if that can continue. Over his last four games of the bubble experience, 14 points against Sacramento on 5 of 9 shooting. 21 points against the Clippers on 6 of 11. 14 points against the Magic on 5 of 10. 16 points in that pseudo-playoff feeling game against Portland on 7 of 13 shooting. Those are great numbers. If he can keep scoring like that, 
it'll boost Brooklyn's chances quite significantly because they're looking for contributions from wherever they can get them. We can't forget that this team is in the playoffs partially because of the guys who aren't here. They don't have, they haven't had Kevin Durant at all, but they don't have Kyrie Irving. They don't have Spencer Dinwiddie. They don't have Torian Prince. They don't have DeAndre Jordan. They don't have Wilson Champ. The list goes on and on. So we're still looking at guys like Joe Harris and Jared Allen and Karis LeVert to continue filling the roles that they, they have admirably filled but we need people like TLC and Tyler Johnson to, to step up. And if they don't, it's going to be a short series. For Toronto, my, my X factor is Nick Nurse. I Ooh. am really, really excited to see. He, he's been such a creative head coach throughout his time at the helm. And I can't wait to see what he's going to unveil when games really start to matter. He's already shown some really unique lineup combinations, some strange defensive assignments that really throw off the opponent, like putting Marc Gasol on a wing player and letting Pascal Siakam defend the interior. It throws people off. They can't decide if they want to cross-match or keep those traditional matchups on the other end. And I don't know what wrinkles he's going to throw out. I just know that there are going to be some. He definitely won't show the full hand in this first round series against Brooklyn because he probably won't need to. But there's going to be something we aren't expecting. And if he can continue to elevate such a deep team in unorthodox manners, they're just going to get even tougher to knock out. Yeah, and I'm hoping he tries some funky stuff in this series specifically because it's going to be a short series. Uh, that, that's a, he's pro- He might be their X-Factor for the playoffs. My X-Factor for them, just for this series specifically, would be Norman Powell, and it kind of gets back to what I was talking about with the half-court offense, is that if you want someone to kind of run it off the bench or add that element where you can maybe sit Kyle Lowry and uh, Fred Van Fleet or Pascal Siakam, you know, two of those three guys at the same time, it's going to come down. Or three, of if you want to throw Marc Gasol in there, if you want to really continue running these bench-heavy units, as Toronto will do, you're going to need someone to kind of pick up that slack, and Norman Powell is just the obvious answer. Had a great year, a little bit more roller coastery in the bubble, though, and so that's why I just look at him, because he can change the tenor of an entire game on his own, but both for better or for worse. And then just looking, not so much a problem in this series, but to make it a little bit macro, he some some tougher defensive assignments are going to fall to him because we know what OG Ananobi is going to be able to do. And then we obviously you could put Pascal Siakam on whoever you want. Like those are two guys that might be able to defend one through five at this point. But when you're talking about number two options that might be running with, you know, heavier bench units in the playoffs for even just a few spurts at a time, like there are going to be some um, tougher pulls for him. And again, not so much in this series, but definitely down the line. So Norman Powell is my X factor here. My prediction is Raptors in five because, look, there's the tradition of Toronto losing game one, right? So we just have to assume that happens. But even if they don't, and they are, let me be clear, like this is not a series they're going to lose. I do think there's it has the chance to be one of those really entertaining and competitive five-game series just because the Nets are they, the, the Nets are just wild. But Toronto's defense is so good, it would not shock me if, if this was a sweep. I really only think what ends up happening is Brooklyn gets hot from deep in one game and is and is you know going to take it that's just why I'm, I'm defaulting to it's probably the cowards pick but i'm picking it brooklyn's performance against portland on thursday night single-handedly convinced me to change this <laughs> from toronto in five to toronto in six um i i agree that the toronto just does have that tradition of dropping that early game that it shouldn't and i i do think that brooklyn plays with enough intensity with enough nobody believes in us attitude and Karis Levert is just absolutely feeling it right now enough so that he could steal a game 
I don't I don't think it's going to be a competitive six game series. It might be one of the least competitive six game series in NBA history, but Brooklyn can take two. Wow. That was not something I was expecting. Nets in six for Adam, marking it down. Celtics. No, no, no. So Toronto, Toronto in six. Oh, yeah. Wow. I'm not picking. I'm not picking Brooklyn. <laughs> Still, <laughs> let's let's Ra- make that perfectly clear Ra- here. Raptors and I misspoke. Raptors. I actually did write Nets in six, though. So it's a good thing you corrected me and didn't. Yeah, just please don't do me. that. I'm actually going to mark down all the opposite picks so that you that you could be wrong and I'll, I'll look I'll look correct compared to your picks. Celtics Sixers. We'll let you start us off, but let me give everyone the vitals the Celtics were fourth in offensive efficiency fourth in defensive efficiency and second in net rating for the regular season Philly was 14th in offense seventh in defense and 10th in net rating my my question for this series is just an overarching health question mark like that's that's what we've got here because Ben Simmons is out we don't know how healthy Joel Embiid is going to be especially if he's shouldering a massive load without Simmons we also don't know about Kemba Walker. We, yep. the, 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 the health question marks for Philadelphia are obvious because they're not the same team without Simmons, and they most certainly aren't the same team without Simmons or Embiid. But for Boston, if, if Kemba Walker's knee is bothering him enough that he's limited in any way, the entire tenor of this team changes because as good as Jason Tatum is, as good as Jalen Brown is, as good as Gordon Hayward is, as good as Marcus Smart is – this team is still pretty dependent on Kemba Walker's creation abilities. And if you take him out of the picture, they are not nearly as dangerous. No, I'm with you. Look, they're the best pull-up jump shooting team in the league because they have Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum. And if you remove one of those two guys from the equation or make them a lesser version of themselves, it's a big-ass problem. Uh, My biggest question for this series, I I guess it kind of ties into what you were saying, but I I need to see what Philly's lineups are going to end up looking like. I know we've gotten a hint at them, but you know who's going to close games? Will you see Embiid and Horford on the court at the same time a, a lot in this series because they think that they can overpower Boston, or are they going to go with the one big lineup? So they willing to throw Embiid out for thirty five plus minutes per game? Um, they showed they were last year after the first round, but his health is always a concern. And this isn't a series because it's the first round that you necessarily want to have to go to that. At the same time, the Celtics are are really good. And so the, the Sixers seem to just have a, a ton of personnel questions, and it helps that Tobias Harris played so well during his time in Disney. But what are they going to look like in crunch time of these games? We know that Joel Embiid is a monster, but his, you know, his turnovers could become exacerbated against Boston's defense. In theory, it looks like this team could kind of overpower Boston into submission. But like Daniel Tice plays, he punches above his weight. I'll just say that. And then Robert Williams, one of your, you know, one of your guys now officially, Time Lord. I'm assuming he's going to get some minutes in this series because you're not going to see a ton of you don't first of all, you don't see a ton of small ball really from Boston anyway, but this is definitely not the series to go to it if you have to go up against um either dual big lineups or even if there's just one of Horford and Embiid on the court at all times. And the rotations in Philly are just they're going to be a, a major question mark probably in every series. How much playing time is Alec Burks going to get? How much of the shot creation burden can he ferry? Similar, really, for Josh Richardson. I remember the Heat tried to turn him into more of a creator before he came over from Miami. It didn't quite pan out, but like now you're kind of in a situation where uh, you need him. And then how are you replacing? You can't replace it, but like, w- what is the impact on the defense here? Because Ben Simmons could guard positions one through five, uh, guarded number one options 
more often than anyone in the league, basically. I think there was only one or two players in front of him, according to um, some of the, the metrics put together by basketball. B-ball indexes uh, Krishna Narsu. So that is something that they're going to have to worry about. And Tobias Harris has played a little bit better defensively um, in Disney. So like, if you can count on him, that certainly helps. And then Embiid, when he's on, he, he probably is the best defender in the NBA, or he's at least right there with Kawhi and Rudy Gobert. I still just feel like we're going to really understand how important Simmons was actually to the defense. I know people criticize his offense, but this feels like a series based on the shots that Boston will try to live off of too, from the perimeter where they're going to end up missing Ben Simmons big time. Yeah. My, my X factors kind of play into the idea that you mentioned of, of Philadelphia trying to overpower Boston. And I, I kind of want to group all of my X factors together here because they're all interconnected. For, for Philadelphia, I think it's Al Horford because Joel Embiid, even if he's healthy, you don't want him playing 40 minutes a game in a playoff series. Maybe one game that you need to win, but you have to be concerned about his health and you have to do everything you can to keep him healthy, which means that Horford is going to fill a substantial role in trying to take advantage of Boston's front court, which is the weakest part of that rotation. And for Boston, I think it's the three-headed, and I'm not going to use the word monster here, but three-headed combination of Daniel Tice, Ennis Cantor, and Robert Williams, who are all going to have to play and are all going to have to try to slow down Embiid and make sure that Horford can't take advantage of them either. Horford struggled throughout this year to fit in with his Philadelphia lineup, whether he's in the starting lineup, whether he's moved to the bench, but he is going to play a big role in this series. And if they can't continue to make him struggle, then Boston could be in a little bit of trouble to some extent. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. My X factor in Philly is going to be Alec Burks, just because I think they're going to need him to to shoulder like an actual workload here and someone who can both handle the ball, hit some shots off the dribble, and then just space the floor in general. He comes closest to checking all of those boxes at once, where for Concord, Maz, probably two of three of those. I don't think you we saw him handle the ball more in Disney, but I don't necessarily know that you wanted that. Glenn Robinson the third, assuming that he's healthy enough to continue playing, he's not going to give you a ton of of ball handling, same thing with Matisse Thibel. And so I default to Alec Burks there. He also feels like someone on this team who might end up not playing in a, a ton of minutes in certain games either, still uh, against Boston. I think they're going to end up needing him. And then for Boston, I feel like my, I was going to go with my X factor being Kemba Walker's left knee, but it kind of feels like a bit of a, of a cop out there. I'm going. I thought about the same thing for what it's worth. Uh, look, he played so well in the minutes that he logged in Disney. It's like, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt here. And so I think the X factor is going to have to go to like the bench because this team is so their top six players are really good, but like it does really fall off after that. And I don't want to loop the entire bench under one umbrella, but who's going to play the eighth most minutes per game for this team? Because we can assume that, Smart will be obviously sixth, will be in the top six right there. And if you want to give the other one to probably Robert Williams, or maybe it's maybe it's Canner, maybe they, they cannibalize those minutes. But the player after them, is it going to be a Brad Wanamaker, where particularly if you don't want Kemba playing uh, 30 plus minutes per game right off the bat, you're going to have to go to him a little bit more frequently. And the last thing I'll mention too, you could also throw give an X factor to Jason Tatum's playmaking, because if for some reason Kemba Walker's off, if he's banged up, if he's not able to log a ton of minutes, they're going to need him to become more of a facilitator. And that's an area where he's kind of lagged relative to his usage. I think he's shown the ability to make more complicated passes, and he was averaging 3.7 assists in the bubble, but they're going to need him to do 
more and put more pressure on the rim, even more so than he was at his peak this year, should something be off with Kemba Walker in any way? Or if the, even if the bench just flops, where you can't even get Kemba Walker adequate rest. This is one of the toughest series to pick, I think, of the eight first-rounders. I think Boston is the superior team, but Philadelphia could be a tough matchup for them just because of the bigs that they have. I, I've I've kind of vacillated between series lengths. I, I think I'm picking Boston regardless, but I could see this going seven. Um, I think my official pick will be six, though, but I've... I've, I've struggled to, to settle on a number. So I flirted with putting Celtics in five because I'm just so unbelievably out on the Sixers, but I also feel like I'm jaded now against them. So I went Celtics in six as well, just for all the reasons that you said, and I could see it going seven. I could even see a path to Philadelphia winning. Joel Embiid stays healthy, plays 37 minutes a game, just absolutely dominates. Boston takes high variance jumpers on offense. So there are a range of outcomes that they, um, you know, that that could unfold here, but I just, I don't trust the Sixers. And I think the Celtics have been ridiculously good this season, top five on both ends of the floor. And I just can't throw that out the window. It's weird. Like, I, I don't trust the Sixers at all, but I also just like can't quit them. You, just, and, you and Zach continue, Lowe, apparently. I'm not fascinated by the Sixers in the, in the upside. I'm just, I don't, I don't believe in the upside. I, I see it. I don't think they would stand a chance if they made it out of the East. Like, I see a path to them getting out of the East. It's a very, distant one filled with twists and turns. I, I wouldn't even begin to think about picking them in more against Milwaukee potentially really at the same time, there is that glimmer of hope. They come out of the East. I don't see them surviving against either of the top four West West teams, to be honest with you, if they were to yeah, meet definitely the finals. Hardwood Knox listeners. Have you ever heard of deal dash.com? It's the best, most honest bidding site where you can win things you'd never expect at a price you'd never believe. They have over 1000 auctions every day on electronics, appliances, beauty products, home decor, and even cars. Here's how it works. It's like an auction, but every item starts at $0 and only goes up one cent every time you bid. The kicker is that the auction clock restarts after just 10 seconds. That means every time you bid, everyone else has 10 seconds to answer or the item is yours. If you go ahead and buy now, DealDash is offering our listeners an extra 100 free bids upon sign-up on top of their other discounts. Go to DealDash.com and use the offer code NOX. Or go to DealDash.fm slash NOX. That's DealDash.fm slash NOX. D-E-A-L-D-A-S-H dot F-M slash NOX. Heat Pacers is next up, though. Uh, do you want me to start with the biggest question, or, or do you want to take it? Uh, why don't you go for it? So my biggest question in this series is how much are the Pacers going to end up getting from Victor Oladipo? And so he was look, still just trying to round into form during the bubble play. Wasn't playing a, a ton of minutes. We weren't even sure that he was supposed to play at all. And, you know, 32 minutes per game, like, is he going to be able to up that number to around 35 to 38? Because if the Pacers want to win this series, that's probably where he's going to need to be and you have to imagine that against Miami when Jimmy Butler there TJ Warren's not going to be as much of a bucket and that's just going to put that much more pressure on Victor Oladipo yeah I think my, my biggest question is similar it's just what is Indiana going to do in general on offense without I mean they're still adjusting to not having DeMontis Sabonis they're still adjusting to having Victor Oladipo back in the lineup now TJ Warren is dealing with plantar fasciitis which isn't going to hold him back too much in the playoffs, but it's still going to affect him. So he's been dealing with who it for is a while going to be the primary? Yeah. And so you would think that he's going to be the primary scorer. Like we, that that's the biggest question I have here is just 
what what is the plan? Right, and look, they're going to need some of their guys to. The whole thing is Indiana always needs to shoot more threes, but they're going to need some of their guys to shoot better. Uh, I did not read the vitals for these teams, though. I just remembered. So Miami sixth in offense, ninth in defense, seventh in net rating. India seventeenth in offense, sixth in defense, and twelfth in net rating. And I want to be clear, I think Indiana is actually just a dangerous team because they have NBA players still, even without Sabonis, at every single position. You know, you and Jeremy Lamb has gone too, and yet to still maintain that type of depth chart is pretty incredible. But I don't know that this is a team that matches up so well against a Bam at a bio team without without Sabonis on the court. And so you're gonna to need to see, you know, Turner can really move his feet. Um, on the perimeter, and, and he's a fantastic rim protector. But if you have to go up against someone who has more brute force or can put the ball on the floor, I don't know if that's who you want. And particularly if he's working down low at all, that's where you're going to miss Sabonis. They're also like a little bit under. This is the I like the way that they're playing in the sense that they don't have two bigs on the court at all times now. But now they're almost a little undersized. Where you've seen lineups um, where Aaron Holiday, Malcolm Brogdon, and Victor Oladipo are on the court at the same time, and so then that puts a ton of. Um, defensive responsibility not only onto miles turner but tj warren as well so i'm i want to see what indiana ends up co-lacing into during this series because i do think that they they could do some damage against miami who i'm a little bit lower on than most people tend to be but just because they don't seem to have a sure thing anymore because if tj warren's been your best player in the bubble that's not exactly the best position to be in you need victor oladipo to be the victor oladipo from 2017 2018 I think to really have a chance in this series or at least something resembling it so for x factors can I refuse to pick one for Miami like is that a thing that I can do I I guess if you want to I just I don't know who it would be because this team has so much depth now I mean we saw Tyler Hero light it up in the bubble we saw Jay Crowder make every three-pointer that he shot we saw Andre Iguodala make defensive contributions we saw Derek Jones Jr. play significant minutes we saw Kelly Olynyk dominate in fourth quarters, and then there's still Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler and Goran Dragic and Duncan Robinson. Like This is a deep, deep team with a coach that is always able to get the most out of his players. And I just I don't know that there is one player that has enough variance in outcomes to really serve as a legitimate X factor because there are replacements at every single position. If someone struggles, there's someone ready to to pick up the slack, and that makes it really hard to have the classic X factor for me. That's fair. I my X factor would be Jay Crowder because I think he has that high variance DNA. Uh, yes, he hit every three in Miami since he's arrived. Fifty six point four percent the bubble. That's absolutely ridiculous. But he's been up and down from beyond the arc his entire career. The other thing here too is that defensively, the lineups with him at the four and at a bio at the five, they've been sort of touch and go. And that's been a theme in Miami for a big part of the year is cobbling together great rim protection in general. But when you have Bam Adebayo next to a smaller four, and I don't really know that they have a ready-made replacement for Jay Crowder if he sort of can't hang defensively there. Uh, You don't want Jimmy Butler playing that far up. I know the Kelly Olynyk lineup has had some success, but I don't necessarily think you want to play that big against Indiana now that they don't have... So bonus. And so Crowder's going to end up being huge in this series. I think two other things you could zero in on too. They are dependent on some guys that just don't have playoff experience like this. Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero, Kendrick Nunn. So how big a roles are they going to play? Robinson specifically, you need his motion and his shooting. And so if he's just, I'm not a, necessarily a big believer in will these players wilt in the moment, but he hasn't been here before. And so if he 
maybe it's different because of the neutral territory, but if Indiana's defense really runs him off the three-point line, that becomes difficult for Miami, particularly without Jimmy Butler shooting, which is another thing you could zero in on is he's even afraid to take threes now. A point, uh, I think he took a total of four three-point attempts in the bubble. That is, or two three-point attempts. Like too many. Yeah, because like too many, yeah. it actually was. It was two three-point attempts in his four games in the bubble. So that's something you could look at. And then also, I, I want to see how they close because you have Iguodala, you have Crowder, um, you have Jimmy Butler, you have Duncan Robinson, you have Goran Dragic, who's important to this team's creation as well. And you can't put together a lineup with on this team without sacrificing something. If you want to play Iggy and Butler at the same time during minutes that matter, you're shooting your spacing. It's just going to be off. And then there's more variance in there because of Crowder. If you go with Dragic, there's the defensive concerns. And so there are just a ton of different ways Miami could go. I think their depth is definitely a strength, but it's also the way their roster is built right now. It is a little bit of a complication. I do have fewer concerns about the lack of experience, just given the unique circumstances here, where it is more of a neutral court game, where we, we have seen more of the AAU playground style kind of succeed throughout the bubble experience just because of the way everything is set up and the mentalities involved. I'm not as concerned about the lack of experience this year um, that, as, as much as I would be in previous seasons. That's fair. My X factor for the Pacers, by the way, would be Justin Holiday. I think he's had a really good year, could not shoot for anything while he was at Disney, but they've put him on a bunch of backup fours defensively. He shot the three ball well all season, and I do think that three-point shooting is going to be incredibly important to this group beating Miami, and I, he played 26-plus minutes per game in the bubble. He's probably going to need to stay around there for them looking at this roster, and can his shot get back to falling like it was during the first part of the regular season? Because even if Warren and Oladipo and, and Brogdon are playing out of their minds, you, you need that that complimentary um, shooter who can stay on the court defensively. And that's not, look, McConnell's not going to provide you the, the necessary floor spacing. McDermott is not going to provide you with the, the necessary defense. And, and he didn't shoot well um, during the Disney stint either. And then I don't think you want to put too much responsibility on the smaller lineups against Miami in particular. I really actually like the Brogdon Oladipo holiday model. And you're not necessarily giving up too much size on the wings, but you know, do you want to have times where Malcolm Brogdon needs to defend, you know, Jimmy Butler a lot? Like, I, I don't know how you're going to divvy up that responsibility with Jimmy Butler either there too. So that's something Justin Holiday's minutes are definitely something I'm going to be watching with this team. Because Jimmy Butler is such a ridiculously intense and potent defender. I think to beat Miami, you cannot just have scoring contributions coming from one source. So if you're wholly dependent on TJ Warren because everyone else is struggling, Butler's going to slow him down and make it almost impossible to win. So the X factor for me came down to Victor Oladipo or Malcolm Brogdon as those secondary scoring options. And I'm going with Brogdon just because we, we saw during his time in Milwaukee, he was legitimately one of the most efficient scorers in the NBA. Last year, he averaged 15.6 points while slashing 50.542.692.8 in the 50-40-90 club. This season, though, partially because he hasn't been quite right and healthy, he's really struggled with his shot, especially from three-point range and around the rim. And it's the around the rim part that's particularly concerning because you do have to put pressure on Bam Adebayo and try to challenge him at the rim sometimes. And if he's going to continue to shoot, uh, he, th this season he was at 53.5% within three feet. Last year it was 64. The year before that, 66. 
we did see some improvement there during the bubble play. Um, he started to connect more from the three point line from from behind the from behind the three point line, and that kind of bled over into the rest of his game. If we see more of that, if he is able to serve as that potent, efficient scorer who can fill an on ball and an off ball role so well, and really just mesh with whatever they're trying to do, then Miami's going to have a much tougher time focusing attention on whoever the primary scorer is. I, you, you need that secondary contribution from him. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. What would be your prediction for this series? I'm going to go Miami in five. I just I, I think that the depth is overwhelming. That they are a team that is built for postseason territory, both in the way they play, in the mentality that they have, and the depth that they have that's usable, and in the coaching that they have. No, no, no disses meant to Nate McMillan there, who's done a fantastic job. There are just too many question marks with this Indiana club right now. That's definitely valid. I went Heat in seven because it does feel like the Pacers are always going to play above their heads, and there are a lot of different defensive looks they could still throw at Miami. And again, with when your two best players and Adebayo and Butler are not shooters right now, I think that does open the door for um, Indy to even pull off the upset. I actually considered Pacers in seven longer for longer than I thought that I would. I will say that I expect every single game to be a close and hard-fought battle. I just have more confidence, given the personnel that Miami has, in them consistently emerging as the winning team in those close games. This is one of those series, though, where if I said the Heat swept the Pacers, would that really shock you? No. But it also wouldn't shock me if someone told me the Pacers are going to win in, in seven. And so it, it's it's like one of those series, which I guess you should expect from a 4-5 to five matchup. The 4-5 to five matchup out west, though, a little bit... I'll say wonky uh, because of the Russell Westbrook injury. He's supposed to miss the beginning of the Rockets Thunder series. They're vitals very quickly. Houston, seventh in offense, which actually seems low. Um, 13th in defense, eighth in that rating. OKC is 17th in offense, eighth in defense, 13th in that rating. It's funny that they each have like the same numbered rankings just mixed in at different spots. I find that interesting. Maybe no one else does. I don't even think, like, do we. Do I need to throw the biggest question to you, or do we have the same one? Is how long is Russell Westbrook going to be out for? Yeah, I think my mine is pretty similar to that. Just what is Houston's style going to be? They went all in on this micro ball concept by trading away Clint Capella. They were even moving towards it while he was still on the roster. You know, committing to having Robert Covington and PJ Tucker playing big minutes at the five and at the four. Are they still going to be able to do that if Russell Westbrook isn't healthy? You know, James Harden should be an absolutely devastating force in this particular postseason because in previous ones when he struggled and sort of garnered that reputation as a a postseason flopper who can't come up in those big moments, it's been more understandable because he's shouldered such a ridiculously heavy workload throughout the regular season. That hasn't been the case this year because he had months off and then he was able to play a couple tune-up games before the, the playoffs actually start. But it's still going to be a huge ask if Westbrook isn't there to have him just completely control the offense for an entire series against a tough and feisty Thunder team that has multiple defensive presences that it can throw at him. So I I think the biggest question isn't necessarily centered around Harden's performance so much as what style they're going to play. Is it going to be asking him to do everything with a continued commitment to these super small ball lineups? Or are they going to try to maybe play something that they aren't as comfortable doing to compensate for Westbrook's absence because they don't have that second ball handler? 
Well, I will say they have no option other than to play small because they just have no bigs unless they're going to dust right. off Tyson Chandler. And so that element of it isn't going to change. This might be a good case study for whether they're going to dictate the terms of play for an entire series because you have Steven Adams in Oklahoma City. Are you going to downsize from that? Are you going to see Nerlens Noel get fewer minutes? Do we see Gallo at the five would probably be a question to ask. And it's something we've seen in small doses that's been, I believe, effective this year, but it's just not something they trot out regularly and so that's sort of a good case study for how effective is small ball in terms of being disruptive with or without Russell Westbrook who was you know he was playing really well with this version of the Rockets because the floor was so open push the pace attack the basket that's you know that that's the best version of himself and so now that he's not there you're losing your second best score how much does it hurt the offense I think James Harden is just a fantastic enough creator that maybe you don't feel Westbrook's absence all the time like you're going to need now, like someone needs to be like just a number two in the sense that maybe they don't need to handle the ball as much. Who's going to be the number two shot maker? Is it Eric Gordon? Does it need to be Robert Covington? All of a sudden they don't actually have a, a ton of options there. And so now you're looking at sort of this one man wrecking crew for even one or two games. That's, you know, going up against the thunder, they, they don't have a great record against teams above 500, but they're also ridiculously good and so that could end up being a struggle for Houston. If Westbrook misses two games, I think there's probably a better than 66, two-thirds percent chance that they end up losing this series. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, this is this is probably the single series that is the toughest to predict, if only because of that Westbrook factor. But even if he were healthy, it's still a it's still an absolute seesaw affair between these two teams because of the stylistic contrast because of the star power involved because of the depth of the thunder team who has overachieved all season and could very well continue to do so um which also makes picking some of the x-factors tougher for oklahoma city i uh I, I was originally tempted to go with one of their wings, whether it's Terrence Ferguson or Lou Dort or Darius Baisley or even Andre Robertson, who started to play and is such a great defensive presence that they could potentially use him against Harden. But ultimately, I think it's Steven Adams just because of the ability to control how the game is played. If he is able to assert himself, and I, I've long thought he's one of the more underrated centers in the league because he has such great touch around the basket and more offensive game than he's typically allowed to show because of the way they play. But if they force the ball into him and take advantage of the lack of size on Houston's on Houston's part, they could potentially dictate the terms here and it would go a long way. He's also kind of an X factor too, because there's, I feel like there's a chance James Harden defends him a lot just because you don't have someone on the Rockets who can necessarily go after Chris Paul. Uh, Robert Covington would be the closest I would say. And so if you decide to put, you know, Rocco on Chris Paul and then PJ Tucker, I guess, you know, you can't even line, can you line him up on Shea? Um, do you put him on Daniel Gallinari? Like they have some really tough defensive decisions to make. And I think one of the best ways to go about it is, and we've seen it before is can you put Harden on this big and, you know, maybe they think with, with Daniel house, um, that's someone you throw on Shea, throw Tucker on Gallinari and then have Robert Covington chase around Chris Paul. Uh, what happens with Steven Adams if he's going up against James Harden? Is he able to exploit that matchup? Does it become a problem? My X factor might be the same. It might be just how it might be James Harden's defense in the sense I just want to see who he who he's on. But I'm, I'm going to pick Daniel Gallinari because if if Houston decides to go with you know we're going to have PJ Tucker or Robert Covington defend a big and it would be PJ Tucker and then throw Robert Covington on Chris Paul and we're going to put House on Shea like Gallinari is going to be the one that's kind of 
like are you trying to put someone on there to like stash someone on him or the other topic there is how often do we maybe see him at the five is are there games where Oklahoma City is going to have to respond to Houston small ball with small ball of their own and then Danilo Gallinari is going to be the natural endpoint at center there and so that whole thing fascinates me Mm -hmm. the other thing we didn't talk about it but just briefly mentioned is Chris Paul still just going to be a superhuman just been absolutely mind-melting this season yes and yes he is um who is yeah let's move on he's just going to be look he doesn't miss for mid-range let's just move on this is going to be exciting to see how um he and Shea work together in in a playoff setting I hope we get to see plenty of the three guard lineup, even if you have to, is it, you know, a small ball situation and just look, you mentioned it with um, Andres. Does he allow them to play smaller a little bit because you can put him on fours. And so maybe you trust um, downsizing, you know, across the backcourt and then also up front with Gallo, something to watch, but who is your X factor for Houston? It's Ben McLemore for me. Uh, what Houston does is dependent on having shooters around heart. If you don't force defenses to cover guys all the way out to the perimeter, then you can partially negate, at least, his attacks on the basket. And Macklemore might be the, the best and most important shooter that they have around, around James Harden in these lineups. During losses, and there have only been 26 of them this year for Houston, he's shot 36.4% on threes. In victories, 42.5%. So he has a high floor. But he also has a really high ceiling. And if he is if he is knocking down those shots and forcing defenses to pay attention to him because they can't give up those three-point swings, then that makes Harden's job so much easier. And it is all about Harden in Houston. Mine would be – that's a great pick, clearly. Mine would actually be Austin Rivers. I feel like he might need to play the – particularly with Westbrook out, the Eric Gordon-type role because Gordon has just been – atrocious this year even when he's I know he's dealt with the knee problems but even when he was you know I guess he was dealing with them all year but just not shot the ball well at all and now he without Westbrook you need someone who could probably handle the ball a little bit more and so in theory that could be Gordon but I think it needs to be Austin Rivers with the way that Gordon is playing you're also going to see maybe Austin Rivers have to match up defensively a lot with some tough assignments like a Shea Gilgis Alexander where if this was last year I might say that they're going to try and put Eric Gordon on him because he's been sneaky okay against certain wing type players in the past defensively, but just, I don't like, can you, is he healthy enough to play? Can you, is he making enough his threes to keep him on the floor? And so Austin Rivers comes closest to providing that balance shot 41.2% on pull up three pointers in the, in the bubble and a little over 36% from deep overall. I I think they're going to have to lean on him while, while Westbrook is out. Maybe my pick would change if, uh, if you can tell me Westbrook comes back in game two, in game three, and it's perfectly fine, but it probably won't just because the Houston's offense seems like there's going to be more of a, a give and take without Eric Gordon playing like you need Eric Gordon to play. You still need Austin Rivers, whether you have Westbrook or not. So who you got in this one? Thunder and seven. I just, if Westbrook's going to miss wow. time, if Westbrook's going to miss time, I don't trust uh, the the cast around James Harden to provide him with enough support to make this work offensively. And I I realize I'm taking a gamble here. I might pick them anyway, even if you could tell me Russell Westbrook was going to be healthy the entire series. I'm very high on Oklahoma City, and I'm just not sure what to expect from Houston's foray into small ball. Um, if this were a different team, I might, I might pick Houston. Again, if Westbrook not being healthy is certainly going to factor into it as well. But just 
looking at the top six guys on Oklahoma City's roster, and I know they they struggle to get like consistent wing play. So if you want to, you know, call Nader and uh, Dort like one player, like whatever, that's fine with me. But they they have like the the return of of Robertson, like that's going to matter too. I think they're a little bit deeper than than meets the eye, and also depth doesn't matter as much in the playoffs when your rotations are shorter. And if you can unleash, they did a really great job not playing Chris Paul a ton this year. If he can play 35 to 37 minutes a game, I don't know if they're willing to do that, but if he can, that ends up being absolutely massive. And so there's a chance, even if you told me Westbrook plays all series, that this would be my pick anyway. I hate that these two teams are playing in the first round, if only because you know we've railed against that Chris Paul is bad in the playoffs narrative for so long. And I feel the same way about the James Harden postseason flopper reputation just because of the circumstances and it sucks that one of them is going to lose in the first round and kind of further those narratives um which which is just it's so unfortunate i would love to see though chris paul beating the team that traded for him um and treated him as the the least valuable asset in that trade right i i think i've i've consistently been a little bit higher on james harden than you have been just you know, I had him second in my MVP voting, and I, I firmly believe that a, a healthy and fresh James Harden has a legitimate case as the most devastatingly effective offensive player in NBA history. And I, I can't pick against him after this long a layoff, especially when he came back and just absolutely dominated in the bubble play. So I, I, I'm going to go with Houston in six solely on his efforts. Six? You got to throw some respect on Oklahoma City's name. Westbrook might right. not be I playing. For have two them games. winning multiple games in the series. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to Nuggets Jazz. Denver is fifth in offense, sixteenth in defense, eleventh in net rating. Utah is tenth in offense, eleventh in defense, and ninth in net rating. What is your biggest question for this series? The biggest question for the series is the same one that always seems to surround Utah right now, and it's just, what is the ceiling like for Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert? Um, I I don't know. I I, I don't know how effective they can be in this setting together against a really good team. They're both fantastic individual players, but we haven't always seen the best from them um, and have have seen some diminishing returns in, in recent years. And there is more pressure on them now than in previous postseasons because of the questions that are swirling more frequently around them following the disagreements they had personally after the coronavirus um, positive tests. And, you know, it just seems like the, the timeline for them isn't as elongated as it's been in the past. And I don't know how they're going to react to that in games that are elimination ones. Yeah, that's uh, I, I totally see that. For me, it would be I, I'm not going to ask a Michael Porter Jr. question just because with Will Barton and Gary Harris out right now, it doesn't. We haven't heard whether they're going to be out to start the series, but it seems like Michael Porter Jr. is going to stay in the starting lineup. So I'm just going to assume that he'll continue playing. His his performance is certainly something to monitor, though. A rookie in the playoffs, if you have to lean on him more, should Jamal Murray go cold? But I'm I'm actually just I'm I'm wondering about Denver's wing play overall because if you don't have Gary Harris and Will Barton, it gets pretty thin pretty quickly. You can use Jeremy Grant as a wing, and he's just been fantastic offensively um, for the most part of his time in the bubble. But like you know, you're kind of light on shooting to begin with. Michael Porter Jr. changes that, but how much does he change that if you're relying on? 
Torrey Craig or Kata Bates Jop for actual minutes in a playoff series. And so I think Utah, which really isn't stacked at the wings to begin with, they don't have Boyan Bogdanovich. Royce O'Neal is, is good. Joe Ingles is good. They're not great. This is a team that on paper, where Denver has wing concerns to begin with, it's a team that they should match up well with anyway, because there's that sort of same middle rungness when it comes to their wing rotation. And yet I think you can clearly say as of right now, if if Barton and Gary Harris miss any time at the beginning, the wing rotation edge is going to go to Utah. And so that becomes, you know, monstrous in terms of figuring out the the rest of this series. Yeah. For X factors here, this is, this might be the series I struggled to pick those most for Denver. It feels like you can go in a million different directions. You can easily nominate Michael Porter Jr. And whether he can continue to thrive on the offensive end, like he did during the bubble, you can, Go with Jamal Murray, who's had such fluctuating performances in key games and needs to justify the massive contract that he signed. You can go with uh, Bull Bull. Maybe he's going to get playoff please, minutes that matter. Don't you go can go with, with Bull Bull. <laughs> you can, yeah, I mean, you can go with PJ Dozier or any of the other wings that you've mentioned. Um, I'm actually going to go with Jokic, as weird as it is to call him an X factor. And the reason is because. The matchup that determines this series is him versus Gobert. And in the past, he struggled with it. He has a 6-8 and eight lifetime record against Gobert. But he went 3-0 and oh against the Jazz this year, including the double overtime victory in Disney. He's also just absolutely dominated against Utah this year, averaging 29.3 points, 12 rebounds, and 9 assists per game while shooting 56% from the field. They've outscored Utah by 6.5 points per game with him on the court. He seems to have found the secret for taking advantage of that matchup by playing even more on the perimeter, by forcing Gobert away from the rim where he's at his best, and then really thriving as both a playmaker for himself and a playmaker for others. He is already a top 10 player in the NBA, but against Utah, he's been more of a top five player in the NBA. And if he can maintain that level of performance, then they're going to be really tough to beat. Somehow, I think that Jokic, as good as he is, which would typically disqualify him from an X-Factor conversation, I think that he's demonstrated that he has enough of a next level against this particular team that he can still qualify. You could probably say the same about Gobert in this matchup, whereas are they actually going to have him go after Jokic? Are they going to park him by the basket and force Jokic to beat them from the perimeter exclusively, which they might view as as a win? Um, this data is obviously imperfect, but the the Denver in the possessions in the time that Gobert spent facing Jokic, Denver's offense as a team is averaging uh, fewer than 1.07 points per possession, which is like, it's an okay mark. It's not a, it's not a great mark. He's shooting 22 of 45 with Gobert as one of his primary defenders, which is 48.9%, three of nine from three, 33.3%. That's definitely a matchup I'm watching. And to actually see like how much time it's an actual matchup, because again, will you have just Gobert parking it, um, down low anyway uh for for denver my my i really want i feel like i should just be picking michael porter jr here and maybe he is a little bit of an x actor because their wing rotation social to begin with but i'm gonna go with jeremy grant just because the minutes with him the on off splits have not been great all year but if you're gonna bring him off the bench particularly when your wing rotation is shallow he's gonna kind of dictate like how you're playing up front when Jokic isn't on the court. Like, can he buy you some small ball minutes if, if Utah decides to go smaller with their second uni, unit heavy matchups? Can we see him and Paul Millsap play together without Jokic? Or are you just going to treat him like a de facto 2-3 now 
at this point. And you're also going to need him to continue just banging in his threes. I know that he's shot well enough for long enough that we can call this his new normal. Uh, but Utah's defense can can be pesky. He's not going to give you a ton of functional shooting anyway. He was at 34.5% in the bubble. He was closer to 40% before that during the first part of the regular season. He's really, the idea of him is really important to the Nuggets now more so than ever when you're dealing with the the injuries to Gary Harris and Will Barton. And also, look, if you want to play Michael Porter Jr., like my thought process here, and I haven't looked closely enough at the lineup data to know whether this has happened, it, he cannot spend a single minute on the court where at least one of Jeremy Grant or Paul Millsap isn't there. Like, it just can't happen. Like, one of those two has to be on the floor with him. He does look totally overmatched on defense still, even if there have been improvements. Um, but I don't know that Utah has the pieces that can necessarily take advantage of it. True. Um, for me, the the X factor for them, they, they need more scoring. You cannot have Donovan Mitchell shouldering an even bigger load because his offense has already his offensive efficiency, I should say, has already slipped a little bit in that in that setting without Boyan Bogdanovich, who will not be playing in this series as he continues to recover from the wrist surgery. So I, I think the the easy and obvious and maybe only correct pick here is Jordan Clarkson because they've counted on him for so much scoring that it's often detrimental. He looks for his own shot so much and with blinders on where he's not seeing other things developing on the court. He's taking fourth shots, but he's also a really talented scorer and you can easily tune into a jazz game and see him making so many tough shots that you're convinced briefly that he's a superstar. If he catches fire and starts playing smarter basketball and the shots are falling, the ceiling of this Utah squad rises exponentially, but he can also easily shoot them out of a game. And and there, there is no player in this rotation with a higher variance between possible outcomes. Even if you want to throw out like Mike Conley, who's looked better of late or Royce O'Neal, who's such a great defender, but needs to do something on offense. Like it feels like it has to be Clarkson here. I didn't pick Clarkson. That's your justification. He actually didn't even pop into my mind. He definitely should have. I'm like being pulled all over the place. The Mike Conley is an obvious answer because can he continue playing at his current level? He was pretty good in the bubble. He started to turn it around before the first part of the regular season ended, but because you don't have Boyan Bogdanovich, you need that other shot maker and creator to alleviate the burden on Donovan Mitchell. And we've seen, you know, Utah, I think the past two postseasons has struggled to hit their wide open threes when, when Donovan Mitchell was just their sole focal point. And so if Mike Conley is not going to play all that well, or be at the level he's been at for, let's just say the six games that he played at, at Disney, 18 points, five assists, uh, slashing 43, 37, and he shot hundred percent at the free free throw line. Good for him. It becomes an issue. And then that's why I'm almost pulled to go with Joe Ingles because they're still going to need him to run some, some pick and rolls here. And then when you look, look at um, Denver, Ingles is going to find himself defending all different types of guys. Like he, I think he'll probably spend a bunch of time, on Michael Porter Jr. would be my guess. I know you have Royce O'Neal that could probably do that, but even if you need him to, is he going to have to defend Gary Harris at points? Um, if, if Royce O'Neal is otherwise going to be occupied, if they decide to have him guard Jamal Murray because they don't necessarily trust Mike Conley or Donovan Mitchell there, there are going to be a lot of, I feel like, defensive matchups that are going to be moved around. And Ingles is, you know, even if he has to go up against a healthy Will Barton, that's not necessarily easy. If you have to go up against Jeremy Grant, where you might be giving up um, just some some size there and definitely, definitely speed and athleticism, 
athleticism, it could end up being difficult for him. And then you still have the sort of the taste from last year's playoffs where he didn't shoot well on his wide open threes either. Now that he's, we can at least say comfortably the third option, maybe they would have preferred him to be the fourth. Perhaps feel a little bit better about that. But you mentioned Jordan Clarkson. Another way to sort of bridge the, the void in the absence of Bogdanovich is can Joe Ingles man those bench heavy units, which is something that is not, you know, in years past, they haven't always unfolded according to plan. But can, can you get more because you trust him as a playmaker, certainly more so than you do Jordan Clarkson? Can you buy time where only one of Donovan Mitchell or Mike Conley is on the floor um, because you have him or even none of them are on the floor? I wouldn't suggest playing a single minute of this series without one of Conley or uh, Donovan Mitchell on the court. But if, if, yeah, for some reason, do if for some reason you do, you know, Joe Ingles becomes that much more important. Yeah, I, I think it's a valid pick. I would just, I just think the offense in this series is so important for Utah, which is why Clarkson was the easy choice for me. Your prediction? Denver in five. Man, I thought mine was going to be hot takey. I've Denver in five too. I feel. All right. I yeah, feel no, it doesn't feel hot takey though. I feel because Utah lot, struggled for a while. I'd feel a lot better about it for Utah if they had uh, Bogdanovich. Like that's just the simple. The fact of the matter of it, and maybe we're too high on Denver because they are. We don't know what's going on with Will Barton or Gary Harris, but they're just so deep and getting so many stand Look, Monte Morris, like we didn't even mention him. Still really good. Not a top 10 player like you consider him to be, but I, I, I consider him a top five player, to be clear. And while I'm you, not you keep misrepresenting my picks here. And while I'm not sure that Denver necessarily belongs in the same conversation as the Clippers and Lakers, I do think that they've turned the corner in the sense that they are a contender. They've made that next step, and Utah is still hovering in that tier below. And I'm just, I'm more so just recognizing that now. Utah's missing what was its third best player and second best offensive player on the season. I think that's going to end up hurting them a great deal. And I'm, I just don't feel confident in the Gobert Jokic matchup for them. And that's not a shot at Rudy Gobert, who's a top 15, 20 player himself. It's just, I'm not sure that I'm in love with, with that matchup with Nikola Jokic when he's, you know, for him defensively. This is not a matchup that Utah should have wanted. And I think it's as simple as that. Like, it's not disrespect meant towards the Jazz to, to only pick them to win one game in this series so much as an acknowledgement that this is not the matchup that they should have wanted, especially now that Porter Jr. and uh, is really coming on and giving them another offensive weapon. It's, I will say it's funny because I would have still said that it was just better for them to avoid Houston. But now that you know Houston doesn't have Russell Westbrook, and that there's the emergence yep. of Michael Porter Jr. in Denver. I think you could make the case that this maybe is a little bit worse matchup for Utah. I also, I, maybe we're underestimating, though, the value in getting the opponent that you clearly wanted because they didn't want the Clippers, they didn't want the Rockets, and so there was, it was the Nuggets after that, unless they want, unless there were still scenarios for them to play the Thunder. Yeah. Clippers-Mavericks. The Clippers are second in offensive efficiency, fifth in defensive efficiency, third in net rating. Dallas is first in offense in NBA history, basically. 18th in defense and sixth in net rating. What's your question for this series? Who is going to guard Luka Doncic? Are they going to put Kawhi Leonard on him? Are they going to put Paul George on him? Is it going to be a group effort? Are they going to let Patrick Beverly take him on? Like there, there are so many routes that the Clippers can go, and I'm I don't know that it's going to have as much bearing on the result because the Clippers are just this dominant force on both ends of the court. But I, I'm just interested to see how they approach it and then also to see how Doncic handles a entirely new experience for him. As good as he's been, he has not been the subject of defensive attention from these point-preventing superstars like the Clippers have over the length of a series where adjustments are made 
against the same team. It's it's a new test for him, and I he's going to struggle. I think as good as he is, there will be struggles in this series, and I just I really hope that that people are able to recognize that no player ever ascends to the top of the NBA pecking order without enduring those struggles and that it's a natural part of growth and that this isn't like suddenly a, a condemnation of his skill or an indication that he is not all of a sudden a, a top 10 player in the NBA. Yeah, look, it's going to be tough because they don't really have, you named all the options they could throw at him, which are all actual viable options where I don't know that you feel good about Doncic going up against anybody if you're the defense, but you have Patrick Beverly, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard. That, and Marcus Morris, too. Right. And so my question is, like, who is picking up the slack in Dallas during this? I think it's very easy to say it'll be Kristaps Porzingis, but we've seen them struggle in crunch time in part because they don't have that other shot creator. Can you get more, uh, you know, off the dribble juice from Tim Hardaway Jr., um, Seth Curry, maybe? I I have zero idea. And so that would be my one question. The other is, how are the Clippers going to close games? Because this is interesting since Dallas is going to play one big at all times, you can just assume that, oh, well, they'll go with a Harrell or they'll go with Jermichael Green even at the five. But like We've seen Kristaps really struggle when he's going up against downsized lineups, and that almost makes it tempting to go with Morris at the five, play him with Kawhi, Paul George, Patrick Beverly, then whoever you want to flesh that lineup out with, with a small, you know, is it Landry Shamit? Do you want to go that route? I honestly, I don't know. And so I'm very interested to see how they close lineups, and I know it'll change for them probably based on their opponent, but for this matchup specifically, I have zero feel for who would be in that closing unit. Yeah, especially because the, the biggest knock on on, on Montrez Harrell, and, and he's my pick as the Los Angeles X Factor in this series, is that he doesn't really spend much time against starters. Most of his contributions are taking advantage of second units and and thriving in those bench lineups. We haven't always seen him be a part of the closing lineups. We haven't seen him excel against starters. It's one of the, the reasons why some people are hesitant to do are, are hesitant to, to accept the idea that he's going to get a massive free agent contract because how much of this is a, is a, a function of him thriving in his role versus him legitimately being this star level big. He's going to have to guard Kristaps Porzingis in the series, and that's really difficult. And if he is entirely overwhelmed in that matchup, then maybe Dallas has more of a chance. Um, I don't expect him to be entirely overwhelmed because I, I do trust his energy level and his ability to bounce all over the court. But it, it is going to be the thing to watch for this remarkably deep and talented team. My factor for Los Angeles is Jermichael Green almost precisely because of what you described. I don't know. Kristaps is not a good matchup for Errol. He's definitely not a good matchup for Zubats, even though Zubats is better at moving his feet than people give him credit for. And so that's just, you land on Jermichael Green there. Those Jermichael Green at the five lineups, they weren't necessarily a staple during this regular season. But we saw Dallas go to them during their first round performance against the Warriors last year. And no, they didn't win that series, but those lineups were actually effective. And so I think you're going to have to roll with maybe more of Jermichael Green than, than you have been. He played... Um, 21 and a half minutes per game in the bubble. That was actually, I, I believe it was above what he was playing during the regular season itself. You might need 25 or more minutes of, of Jermichael Green. And so how is he going to fare if he's if he's defending Kristaps Porzingis a ton? My my X factor for for Dallas, I, I think it's Seth Curry. Um, he I think he's their best chance of getting that other guy who can create off the dribble and make shots. He's also a little bit pestier on defense than people give him credit for. Um, can really read pick and rolls well, and he's going to you know not get 
absolutely destroyed in one-on-one situations. I know he's not the biggest guard, which then complicates things. Um, but I, I still, I'm looking at, I just don't think it's Tim Hardaway Jr. We've seen Kristaps in the post and the whole him fading away or shooting over guys, like it's, just, it's not working. And so you're going to need that second outlet from Doncic. And I honestly think that Seth Curry is the second bet is the best chance you have of finding that player on this current roster. I should qualify that with, I don't think said player is on this current roster, which is something that Dallas needs to address moving forward. I'm going to go in a different direction here because I think that if you need that second ball handler, it's an admission that you've already lost the series. Doncic spends so much time with the ball in his hands. He was second in touches per game to Nikola Jokic this year. He was second in time of possession per game to Trey Young this season. If, if Los Angeles is defending him well enough that he is not dominating possessions and spending the majority of their half-court time controlling the action, they've basically already lost. I think the only way that you counter that is just with extremely potent shooting to the point that you're letting him take on these difficult one-on-one assignments and creating for others and for himself. It's the only way that I see any path to victory, which means that I think it has to be a shooter, which means that Seth Curry is an option, which means that Tim Hardaway Jr. is an option. But I'm going to go with Dorian Finney-Smith because of his role on both ends of the court. He's going to be tasked with guarding either Leonard or Paul George for so much of this matchup. And he's going to have to do that while maintaining enough energy to generate these off-ball looks that he has to hit also. He he really excelled during the restart action. He played 31.6 minutes per game, averaged 11.6 points, shot 39.5% from deep on 5.4 long-range attempts per game. If he can replicate those numbers while also playing quality defense, it means that Doncic is doing something of note with the ball in his hands and that he's spacing the floor and defending. And I, I don't think that anyone else in this rotation has that hefty a burden on both ends of the court while also being able to elevate the ceiling in a way that doesn't detract from what Dallas can do. What's your prediction? The Clippers in a sweep. I went Clippers in five. I just feel like Doncic is good enough to get them one game, but I, I was tempted to go with the sleep, uh, the sweep as well. I feel really bad about that because I love this Mavericks team, and Doncic is unbelievable, and he very well could steal a game or two games or three games, but it just it feels like the Clippers are are just too potent in this scenario. This feels like the one team that they didn't want to face. Like even you could have put them up against the Lakers, yeah. and they might have had a better chance. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of the Lakers. Lakers Blazers after Portland secures the the play-in over the the Memphis Grizzlies they are in the postseason as the number eight seed what's your biggest question for the series how much does Damian Lillard have left in the tank it is mentally exhausting and physically exhausting to have to consistently put up these massive superstar caliber performances these 50 point outings a 60 point outing in these elimination games it has to have been draining. We saw him after they beat the Nets to stay alive. You know, he was almost collapsing to the floor just in relief and celebration, just depleted. And, and as good as he has been, he is everything to this team. And if he is not able to continue to put the pedal to the metal and just absolutely thrive on offense as that do-everything player, especially with even more attention focused on him somehow, because you know that LeBron is going to spend some time guarding him during this series. I, I just I don't know 
what else Portland is going to be able to do. Yeah, I'm. I'll go with the Lakers side of that, but it's obvious that's a fair question to go with for Portland. You could also question anything about their defense. Is a Lakers half court offense just going to be okay? And particularly during, I don't know how many minutes LeBron is going to play. I think he's at like 42 uh, minutes per game for his playoff career. Even if he's off the court for between six and eight minutes per game, like you can lose an entire series during that time. And so, how is that slack going to be picked up? You don't have uh, Rondo's back in the bubble. I don't know how close he is to returning as we record this. Who is who are you going to for that secondary shot creation? We've seen Anthony Davis be able to put the ball on the floor, but I think Frank Vogel said the other day that his spot up three point shooting is going to be important to the Lakers' livelihood, and that's that's also not okay because Anthony Davis is not a great shooter, whether he's off the dribble or from a standstill position. How are you relying on Alex Caruso? We've seen them kind of move away this team from Deion Waiters and J.R. Smith, but do they come back in the fold? Um, I think it puts a lot of pressure on Kyle Kuzma, who played very well while he was in Disney. He averaged 15.4 points per game in under 29 minutes while slashing 46, 44, 72. Uh, that, I th- he's probably going to be my X-Factor pick for the Lakers unless you picked someone else. Um, Contavious Caldwell-Pope could end up being sneaky big um, during this matchup. I think it helps that the Lakers, you know, Portland doesn't have anyone to defend Anthony Davis. Like you could throw Yusuf Nurkic on him and maybe he'll be okay, but they definitely don't have anyone to go after LeBron. It's going to be Melo and Gary Trent Jr. Like are are those the calls because you don't have Trevor Ariza. So that's definitely going to help out the Lakers. But these are, this is a question for, for moving forward because how is your half court offense going to fare in a potential matchup with uh, they're going to play the winner of the Rockets Thunder, correct? So, you know, those teams are going to be a, a bigger test for them. And that's this is a, a series, you know, where people are talking about LeBron kind of petering out before. He, he has to be, he almost has to be on his game from day one because you don't want to lose at least one of the first two games in this series because then it's going to open the door for people to say, oh, we are the Lakers vulnerable and this and that. You want to make this a gentleman sweep where it's just never in doubt. Yeah. The X factor for the Lakers, I think, along those similar lines, you know, we know how good this team is with LeBron and with Anthony Davis on the court. They're a devastatingly effective two-man combination. They can't play all 48 minutes, or at least so we think. So my X factor for the Lakers is just insert non-LeBron or Davis player here. I think it's going to vary from game to game. Some games it could be Caruso. Some games it could be Deion Waiters. Some games it could be Danny Green or Kyle Kuzma, who they really need to, to continue to producing at uh, at a potent offensive level um, to be able to support the scoring you're going to get from LeBron and Davis. It could be KCP. I think it varies by game because by design, this, this team is built around two players and you just need different players to step up depending on the night. And I don't, I don't, I don't think it's, possible or fair to pick just one here my i already mentioned kuzma and if he's going to shoot the ball and defend like he's been like he's he's absolutely the x factor but i just don't want to i think we've talked about him now enough on this podcast and he's been really good and so if you throw in like a third really above average offensive player for the lakers now like that that makes life hell on on portland right Uh, but can he shoulder you know can you go lineups you know with kuzma and ad for you know four minute three minute stretches without lebron it's going to be interesting to see I'm also, the X factor for me is going to be who spends the most time guarding Damian Lillard. I know you said LeBron might see some time on him. That really wasn't the case during the regular season. And I don't think this series is ever going to be close enough to where they need to go that route. It feels like it's going to come down between Caruso, Danny Green, and Contavious Caldwell-Pope. I'm sure it'll be a committee, but 
I, I might mean if you were to pick one, I feel like I'd rather just throw Danny Green on CJ McCollum and then have Kentavious call up Hope and Crew to kind of trade off duties on Damian Lillard, which would then in turn make them um, my Lakers X factors. For the Blazers, I'm going to go with a future Hall of Famer in Carmelo Anthony as the X factor. And I think he's reached the point in his career where that's valid. I loved what I saw from him during the bubble play in these games that counted so much. You can tell that he's motivated. You can tell that he's lost a little weight and is moving better than he has in a while. He shot 46.9% on three-pointers in their eight games before the play-in stretch. He consistently looked better on defense. He's probably going to spend some time trying to guard LeBron. He might also be spending some time guarding Anthony Davis, which yeah, is they play an him even at, tougher matchup for him. If they play him at the four when the Lakers are running with two bigs, that might that might be what happens, yeah. I don't think it's good news for Portland that Carmelo <laughs> Anthony at this stage of his career is the X factor, but I do think that the importance of his um, of his secondary offense as an off-ball weapon, I think the importance of his ability to to get buckets off the bounce, to uh, at least hold his own in some of these really tough defensive matchups, given their lack of wing defense presences, uh, he seems like one of the two choices alongside Gary Trent Jr. Yeah, there. well, you could go with Gary Trent Jr. Um, that's fine for me, too. I'm actually going to go with Yusuf Nurkic just because of the amount of time I think he's going to have to spend on Anthony Davis. If you're looking at closing lineups, we're going to see Davis at the five. He was moving so much better than I ever would have expected for someone who missed more than a year after suffering compound uh, fractures in, in his leg. Uh, just on offense, just on, on defense by the end of the bubble, too, Anthony Davis is a completely different type of, of transcendent player. And so that, depending on how much he ends up actually guarding him, which again, I think is going to be a substantial amount of time. You could also throw Zach Collins into this equation, um, particularly if you're going to go with the, if Los Angeles continues to run with those McGee and Howard uh, with Davis lineups. Still, when it matters most, I feel like that responsibility, it, it kind of falls on Nurkic there. And is he able to keep Davis in check? at all is he is he moving well enough to go after davis and if it's not going to be him you know you already then it has to be carmelo anthony just because i think he ends up seeing um when you're looking at the most important minutes that are going to be played he's probably on the court instead of zach collins and so and, and look for two bellows credit 16.5 points over his last eight games while banging in 46.9 percent of his three pointers i'm over the whole tweeting about the apology needs to be as loud as the disrespect i actually was of the mind he always belonged in the NBA, so I'm not taking a victory lap here. The problem was, as ever, not his talent, but the fit, because no, there weren't 400 and something players better than Anthony in the NBA. It was, can he fit as part of a larger dynamic? And that was a fair question after watching how things unfolded in Houston and OKC when he struggled even while playing the roles that many wanted him to play. Portland allows him to be himself way more than many of those other teams where he can go post up and take pull-up mid-rangers, and that seems, striking that balance has seemed paramount um, to optimizing his performance, and he really shouldn't leave Portland. I know they don't have his bird rights, and I don't know how much they're going to want to spend on him with their mid-level this summer, but he shouldn't leave the Blazers. I can't envision him being this this good of a fit anywhere else. Uh, so it would be between him and Nurkic for me, but I'll just deviate from you because of the. I think the Nurkic-Anthony Davis matchup ends up becoming the one of the most important uh, defensive ones for the Blazers. But you know, we're just talking about Melo might. He's probably going to spend time guarding Anthony Davis and LeBron James in this series. Think about that. In That's 2020. Tough, tough matchup, yep. yep. Uh, I think the, the only question here, I, I, I know we're both picking the Lakers to win the series, but it's it's really a question of 
how many games we think Damian Lillard is going to steal. And for me, it's one. For me, right. it's one. I'm going to pick Lakers in five. Yeah, I'm with you there. And it's just, I think it comes down to perfectly that. CJ McCollum dealing with the fracture in his back, he's been really good in the playoffs in the past, so maybe there's a chance they make this interesting. If the Lakers' half-court offense is such poop that the Blazers' defense is okay, this could be a series that goes six games. But that would really depend on, Melo just has to be out of this world, and CJ McCollum probably has to be at the top of his game, and he looks like he's hurting right now. Just to recap, though, um, before we get out of here with this 90-minute podcast, you're welcome, everybody. Bucks magic. I have Bucks in four. I thought you were writing down my picks, right? Oh, well, I am. All right, so I have I have Bucks in four. Adam has Bucks in four. I thought you wanted to say your own pick, but I'll just read them. Raptors, Nets. I have Raptors in five. Adam has Raptors in six. Celtic, oh, excuse me, Nets in six, right? That's Nets in six. Oh, no, not this again. <laughs> Celtic Sixers. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't trust you to read these out. <laughs> Celtic Sixers. Uh, we both have Celtics in six. Heat Pacers. I have Heat in seven. Adam has Heat in five. Lakers Blazers. We both have Lakers in five. Clippers Mavs. I have Clippers in five. Adam has the sweep. Clippers in four. Nuggets Jazz. We both have Nuggets in five. And Rockets Thunder, I have Thunder in seven. Adam has Rockets in six. That is the one series where we differentiated on the outcome. So that is the one to monitor. That's going to be the tiebreaker. There had to be one somewhere, right? You would think, but we were we were pretty much in lockstep through this entire process. Thank you all for listening to this. We, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope it was out quick enough for you following the conclusion to the Grizzlies Blazers playing tournament. If you've not done so already, please, please, pretty please remember to subscribe to us wherever you're consuming your podcast download every episode if you're using apple Podcasts or even if you're not please head over there throw us a five-star rating write a review those things really help us out and with the number of people that listen to this podcast we're not even close to the number of people who have thrown in a rating and a review so if, if we you could help us drum up those numbers we'd really appreciate it also subscribe to our youtube channel even if you're not listening to these podcasts on youtube youtube.com search hardware Knox. Like our videos, subscribe. That helps us out as well, too. Until next time, we leave you with the shout-out to the one, the only, eight no sons who didn't make the playoffs even though they went undefeated in the restart. Sports are back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. Major League Baseball is finally kicking off, and there's no better place to start wagering than our exclusive partners, Bet Online. Check out all the odds, futures, and props to bet on, all available 24-7. And with the return of sports, BetOnline sat down with former pro players Eddie George, Harold Reynolds, and seven-time NBA champ Robert Ory. See what they had to say on what it'll be like playing without fans in a series they're calling Fandemic. Visit BetOnline.ag for all your odds and up-to-date sports news. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.